Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Masterclass. All right, welcome. Today, we've got Lynn Alden joining us talking the fourth turning, the long-term debt cycle, fiscal dominance, and her new book, Broken Money. Let's get into it. Welcome, Lynn. Welcome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Just as a reminder before we get started, too, I want to remind everybody, lynnalden.com, and you can tune in for Lynn Alden's various investment strategies that she uh, proposes and puts out there for the world to consume. She's also a fantastic resource on Twitter and has a new book we're going to talk about today. Also, I'd like to suggest that I welcome my colleagues, Richard Latterman and Adam Butler, myself, all from investresolve.com. And I will emphasize, none of this is investment advice. It's just good, clean fun on a Friday afternoon. So with that, where shall we start? Broken money. Let's do it. Yeah. What, the, what motivated you to, you'll start with the classic question about for, for somebody who just newly published a book, which is in itself a Herculean achievement. We speak from experience. Yeah. What, why this book? Why now? And why do you think you are the right person to, to write on these themes? So this culminates a lot of the research I've been doing over the past five years. I write a lot of long form articles, but ironically, some of them are not long enough because every time I, you know, money is a very, money is a very in-depth subject. It's something that you have to start from first principles and build up. And so what I wanted to do was to really put a lot of my content that is spread out in all these different silos and all these different pieces into one coherent package for people. And so I wanted to put all that together. I have a background that blends engineering and finance. And so in this world of talking about the current macro state that we're going through. The book explores the history of money through the lens of technology. And then it explores some of the future technologies or the, the present technologies that are now available to us in a couple of different forks in the road. So that kind of technical plus financial uh, background comes in handy. And then lastly, I, I live between the United States and Egypt every year. And so I, I have a boots on the ground experience of both a developed country and a developing country and broken money takes a global look at money. It, it tries to remind people that we're not all in the United States or Europe, even though that might be a lot, a big chunk of our audience. It, it basically says, okay, let's look at money from a global perspective. And so I bring that perspective to the book. 
Yeah, that's great. I don't want to gloss over the fact that you spend a good chunk of your year in Egypt. Two of my grandparents were born in Egypt. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the starkest contrasts when you, how, how long do you spend per year, like a few months of the year? And what are some of the sharpest and starkest contrasts when you spend that time there? Yeah, usually a month or two each year. And so I think the biggest contrast is probably the traffic. Egypt certainly has the craziest traffic I've seen in any country. And I've been to a, a bunch of different countries. Cairo, yes, but I've been to other ones too. Cairo is the craziest if you're in a city environment. Basically, if one thing about Egypt is they've it's very few traffic lights. It's the traffic patterns are just a very different philosophy. And so you're you can be in like a, a city the size of New York and you can drive for half an hour and see one traffic light. So instead it's more like just bumper cars have to sort it out on their own. Apart from that, I go to a, a number of different countries, some developed, some developing, and it has a lot of characteristics of a developing country. It's less than four thousand GDP per capita, and every country's unique. And it's just it's it's a a very ancient culture. And it's a very, it's one with, it's arguably the most history or one a top tier in terms of how much history and continuity is there. And so you get to see all of the, the, it's almost like tree rings on a tree. It's like you can go back in Egypt's history and there's just, there's so many changing of power structures, changing of uh, their place in the world. And of course, I explore a lot the, the monetary situation there. Plus, oh no, you went. Now, I'm just curious if, if Lynn was there uh, and was already visiting regularly during the Arab Spring and, and everything that was going on in the last couple years. So I started going after that. I started going five years ago. My husband's originally from Cairo. He was there during the Arab Spring and he eventually moved here. And then we now live in both, the majority in the United States, but both every year. So yeah, he directly there. He, he was in Cairo and participated in parts of it uh, while it was happening. Can you maybe highlight some of the some of the differences for for those in the developed North American world with the the convenience of the currencies that we we possess in making purchases and contrast that maybe to how much more difficult that is in a country like Egypt? Maybe that's a good place to start to frame a discussion around the money and how it develops and how it functions in different areas of the world. Sure. So one thing to realize is that there are 160 plus different currency areas in the world, and each one has this kind of local monopoly. And because they control the financial borders pretty well, at least up until pretty recently with some of the newer technologies that are available, people are stuck in whatever monetary environment they find themselves in. And the long tail, the majority of currencies are not very good. And so in a developed country, we're used to something like 7% annual broad money supply growth on average. Obviously, there are some particularly crazy years where that can be different, but the long-term average is around 7% in the developed world. Whereas when you go into the developing world, you're going to be firmly in the double digits. Many of them have experienced hyperinflation or near nearly hyperinflation within a generation or two. Like dozens of countries have experienced it in my lifetime. And if I add my parents' lifetime, it's a tremendous number of them. In a country like Egypt, you're looking at about 20% money supply growth per year. And so you're dealing with much higher levels of, of structural inflation. Your currency is not accepted outside of your country almost at all. People seek out dollars on like the gray market. You, the same thing happens in Argentina and many other countries. So people will literally, be, a challenge that we have, so in, in developed countries, we have these things that are more subtle. And so we say, okay, we're going to take our savings and we're going to invest in the stock market or things like that, 401ks. Whereas in Egypt, 
even the capital markets are just not very attractive. They don't just go up and to the right in like real purchasing power terms. Many decades we're accustomed to in the United States and other parts. And so most people invest heavily in real estate. They invest in literally physical cash dollars, like under the classic under the mattress cash dollars. A significant percentage of the population is still unbanked because it, basically banking has a certain overhead attached to it. And so if someone has like a $200 in cash to their name equivalent, it's just not profitable to bank them. And so there's like a large cash economy among the bottom half of the population. Whereas if you're middle class, upper middle class, wealthy, you generally have banking access and it's, it looks similar to what we have here with the exception that everything's just way more inflationary. And what people don't often realize is that in addition to inflation constantly eating away at your savings, especially if you lack things like deep capital markets to reinvest them into, it's also every year is a fight for your wages or your business income. Because if you're not growing your wages by 20% mm-hmm. a year, you're getting diluted. Your share of the pie is getting diluted. So it's not just your savings, it's that you have to aggressively renegotiate your things every year. And of course, that's really hard. So if you're a landlord, many people feel bad about raising their rents 20% a year and people will balk at that. And it's and so people end up getting their share of the network, their monetary network constantly diluted by the powers that be. And so that's it's a quintessential example of why I say that money's broken because it's been fractured into 160 different currency bubbles and the best ones have downsides, but most of them have pretty pretty stark downsides. And there seems to be a socioeconomic kind of fault line or minimal terminal velocity where the majority or some part of the population almost has no hope to even get to the ability to be banked, potentially have some access to loans, which then would allow them to leave our businesses and things like that. So there's a structural impediment to uh, the haves and the have-nots, if you will. Yeah, being being poor has a significant financial cost to it. So unless you have some luck or exception that allows you to break out of that, it's not impossible, but there's it, so many frictions there to break out and achieve escape velocity. Uh, and that's also true on the global stage. So for example, if you look over the past 50 years and we ask how many developing countries have developed, the number you can count on roughly one hand. It's mostly a number of kind of small and medium-sized countries in Asia. So it's like Singapore, South Korea, according to most metrics, Taiwan, according to most metrics. Some of these are actually still classified as emerging markets, even though functionally we can say not really. China is, is going in that direction. It's a more complicated one. But basically, out of the kind of 100 plus countries in the world that are not in the developed country status, there's a single digit percentage that have become developed in the past 50 years. And one of the ways to measure that, basically from a financial perspective, there's a lot of different metrics to use, GDP per capita and like capital markets. There's all sorts of details. And that's, for example, why MSCI and FTSE will debate whether or not South Korea is developed or not, which is in my view, silly because they have better internet than I do here. But, but the way that you can, if there's one delineating factor from a financial perspective, it's whether or not they can finance themselves in their own currency. So in, in the United States, in Canada, in Japan, in Europe, you can finance yourself in your own currency. China, then there's a spectrum there. So some of the high tier emerging markets, China and, and countries like that, Taiwan, South Korea, they've, as they've reached that threshold, they can mostly do it in their own currency, whereas an emerging market is getting a lot of financing in dollar terms or sometimes euro terms. And this actually feeds back on itself because it's harder, like your currency is more volatile when you have external debt, but because your currency is so volatile, it's 
it's hard to get any. They, that's why you have external debt uh, in another currency, and so it's a chicken and egg problem. And other than like very exceptional cases, uh, like the handful of ones I mentioned in, in mostly in, in East Asia, uh, very few countries ever transition to being able to go from relying on this kind of international dollar standard to relying on their own currencies. And then the ones that, and then basically there's a, a two tiers of money. So the leaders, the corporations in those countries, they can get offshore accounts, they can access foreign capital markets, they're, they can get they get, they deal with the IMF, they deal with global financiers. Whereas if you're at the bottom 90% in those countries, you're basically stuck in this like fiat matrix. It's like, you're, this is your currency, you're constantly getting diluted, you have to run on a treadmill just to keep your savings and, and your wages and your business income from not getting diluted. And all that comes with frictions. Awesome. I just want to remind everybody, hey, we're here with Lynn Alden talking on her about her new book, Broken Money. LynnAlden.com is where you can find a lot of her fantastic research. Very good on Twitter as well. I'm accompanied by my colleagues, Richard Latterman and Adam Butler as Investor Resolve riffs with Lynn. So Lynn, getting back into it, you, you do give some hope in the book. How can we make it better? And then there's a technological angle. We used to use seashells on the seashore to trade currency. Maybe you could walk us through how it gets better and what your technological angle was through the book for everyone. Yeah, so a lot of money books, especially monetary history books, focus on politics of the day. What did this president do with money or what did this, what was this, these cultural movements doing with money? Whereas I take a more technological view because that's what tends to matter on a global scale. What is, wh why does money change from seashells to gold to banknotes to banks globally? And it's largely due to technology. So we can put that into three eras. So the first era is the commodity era, where as our technology got better, we would increasingly rule out certain types of commodities as money. So shells, beads, copper, cocoa, tobacco, these things were all used as money and were increasingly just became untenable in the face of industrialization to the point where really only gold and silver had could maintain high enough stock to flow ratios. So it's very hard to rapidly increase the existing supply of gold and silver compared to other commodities. So that was era one. And then during that time, because gold and silver have divisibility limitations, portability limitations, verifying limitations, we had increasing banking structures built on top of those and the invention of papyrus, the invention of paper, the invention of even just simple things like book binding. It's trivial today, but there, there was a paper technology at the time, not just to invent paper, but then how to actually bind paper together and use it better and make it cheaper to use. Then there was, of course, the printing press. And you had different levels of banking, like physical technology that enabled new types of banking arrangements or moving money. But the second era really began with the invention of the telegraph and specifically the, the, of the telegraph, which happened throughout the second half of the 1800s. Because from that point, people could transmit information at the speed of light globally, while the physical money could still only move at the speed of matter. And if you can transmit information, you can transmit transactions but you can't settle those transactions. And so for the past 150 plus years, the world has increasingly relied on centralization and abstraction in order to send money long distances. Basically any long distance transfer is really a type of credit. You're using various ledgers, you're using different intermediaries to send someone money. You're not actually sending them like a bare asset. You're not just like teleporting gold to them or teleporting a dollar to them. You're just hopping through different ledgers that are all based, they're all IOUs, they're centralized, they're credit-based, which has, it's efficient, but of course, going back to the prior discussion around 160 different currency silos, 
people get trapped in these kind of centralized arrangements. Third era I would define as, and that's where the hope comes from, is the, is the current new technologies that potentially bring money back to having a global marketplace. So instead of 160 different fiat currencies, now there's things like Bitcoin stablecoins that can pierce across jurisdictions in a way that prior technologies couldn't. So for example, if we picture a classic emerging market country, let's say Argentina, there's really two ways to bring money in or out of it, right? There's ports of entry, so gold and cash through an airport, obviously very limited amounts, and then wire transfers in or out of the country, which means that if you're an Argentinian that wants cash dollars, it's, it's going to be pretty challenging to get your hands on them. It's, you're going to go into the gray market to get it. You're going to pay a big markup for it. And then you're not going to want to trust a bank to hold it for you. So you're going to be holding cash under your mattress here in the 21st century. And that's basically, that's what a lot of people do there. They seek out alternatives. What stablecoins do, let's start with stablecoins, is that you can have, they're basically offshore bank accounts for the middle class, right? So instead of just the rich people in these countries having offshore accounts, things like stablecoins say, okay, here's this issuer, they they hold collateral, they hold T-bills, whatever they hold, they're based in, you can have a gold-backed stablecoin in Switzerland, which exists, you can have a dollar-based stablecoin, there's a bunch of them, they exist. You can put, you can even have ones that pay interest, like a T-bill token, these can exist in various kind of safer hubs, like jurisdictions, and they can be accessible peer to people in these emerging markets. So now there's more choice for people that, are, that achieve a certain level of tech savviness, internet-connected cultures. So countries like Argentina have no problem increasingly accessing these things because it's a very sophisticated culture, even though they have massive inflation problems. And this applies to a lot of different emerging markets. And so they can access foreign assets in a way that you can send someone money over an email. If there's a video call like this, someone can hold up a QR code and the other person can send money to them and it goes around their local banking system. So those that prior financial firewall is now more porous. And then of course, there's things like Bitcoin that are completely decentralized or about as decentralized as you can make something. And so it doesn't even need a specific jurisdictional hub. It's just a form that exists everywhere and is now something that, again, you can I can hire a Nigerian graphic designer and pay her over a video call or over an email or a DM or just any, as long as we have internet connection, we can pay each other in a way that I can go around the Nigerian banking, right? And that obviously brings up challenges to, from, for some power structures. Like government of Nigeria, on one hand, they should like it because it's a way for money to go into the country. It, it allows their people to act the global market. On the other hand, uh, it takes away some of their power over their... You know, no one likes to give up their monopoly. And so that, that technology is out of the bag now. And the more liquid, accessible, robust it gets, the more it starts chipping away at all these different financial borders. Oh, you, you muted, Adam, I think. I really like that explanation. And I think it'll connect with many people who haven't given this a lot of thought and who also are adjacent to the whole digital assets phenomenon. I wanted to probe a little bit about the use case for stablecoins seems airtight. I'm a little bit more fuzzy on what the merits, the relative merits of, for example, a Bitcoin might be in this context of being able to access more stable stores of value. And as you say, there's a variety of different stores of value that you can access via these sort of distributed offshore bank accounts. So maybe help bridge the gap for me between the use case for stable coins and the relative merits of Bitcoin or something like that. Sure. So maybe, yeah, go ahead. If if we could just differentiate within the stable coins, those that are backed by 
either fiat or you mentioned a gold-backed digital currency in Switzerland. I wasn't even aware of that one. Versus the algorithmic ones, I believe Luna was the one that precipitated a large collapse last year. And I think that was part of the domino effect that ended up bringing FTX to its knees. So I wonder if you might differentiate between the two, because I think there, there can be some confusion between them. Yeah, algorithmic stable coins try to create artificial dollars. I specifically wrote about and warned about Luna before it blew up. And so that, that's, been a, that's been a known kind of challenge in the space. A lot of the crypto area is just filled with fraud. So with any powerful technology, especially if a gatekeeper is brought down, there's going to be a flood of scams and frauds until the industry sorts itself out. So for example, when equities became more accessible to a retail audience, penny stock boiler rooms became like a big thing, right? And so we're, we're in that era right now of this industry where the gatekeepers are down, people, there's like a, a learning process that people have to sort through scams. So yeah, I specifically refer to assets where the issuer is collateralized and they hold the asset and they have redeemable tokens that can trade for that asset. And you can only redeem it if you're a big entity, but if you're a small entity, you can trade it with other small entities or those big entities. And they generally have various, they can monitor on chain where it's being used and they can freeze certain tokens that are associated with criminal activity and stuff like that. So there's some degree of regulation on them. That's really the main difference between stable coins and Bitcoins is that Bitcoins are fully decentralized. And so unless someone can gain half of the network's hash rate, there's no way to censor transactions. And so it's just a fully decentralized model. In addition, at the end of the day, stable coins are just, they're basically just extensions of the current system. They're IOUs, right? So if you have this token, there's this, there's this entity in a jurisdiction that has collateral that they can redeem them for. You have to rely on them being solvent. You have to rely on their auditors being legitimate. You have to rely on their government not wanting to sanction your government because then you can get cut off from your own stable coins. So stable coins, if you're just a person in Iran trying to protect yourself from inflation, you might have more trouble with certain stable coins because you're in a sanctioned jurisdiction, for example. So through no fault of your own, just because of where you're born, this is an asset that's harder for you to access than say someone in Argentina where the United States doesn't really mind Argentinians using stable coins, right? So Bitcoin is one where it's just fully decentralized. And of course, it's scarce in the sense that even the dollar is inflationary, just more slowly than some of these developing market currencies. And two, I would point out that as we get more and more debt on the public balance sheet, I eventually expect major currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, to, to face, I would say, directionally similar problems to emerging markets. I, th I think we're entering a more on average inflationary decade. The more public debt you get, less powerful interest rates are as a tool of inflation fighting. And we shouldn't, the, the past 40 years have been a remarkable period of currency stability among the major powers. And I don't think we're going to repeat that as cleanly for the next 40 years. And so even in these major jurisdictions, Bitcoin is a powerful savings asset. It, you can, it's, it's an emerging monetary network. And so for people that have the kind of capacity to look past the volatility and see how that is developing, I think it's a very powerful asset. Let me push back a little bit on this premise of Bitcoin being a potential savings vehicle or a potential store of value. Our friend Bob Elliott, friend of the show, been on the show recently, he tweeted out something that I thought was relevant and I wanted to point it out. He said, Bitcoin reinforcing recent days that is not only driven by rising geopolitical conflict, macro dynamics, or rise in banking stresses, huge street moves on idiosyncratic news. I guess he was referring to the 
ETF news that is potentially going to be launched. So she said, a lack of clear fundamental economic return properties undermines its inclusion as a portfolio asset. How would you respond to that? How do you think about the, the last year and a half with the debacle of FTX and then this crypto winter? Would you just say that's a normal course for a new technology or, yes. or is there more to it? Yeah. So what I respond to his is that his entire remark is based on price. He never actually talked about the fundamentals of the network, proof of work versus proof of stake or what utilities Bitcoins uh, actually do for people. I, I generally find a lot of kind of Wall Street analysts, when they look at Bitcoin, they'll if I say, okay, what are your thoughts on SegWit, Taproot, basically various things that are fundamental associated with that network, that's off their radar. They're just looking at it as like a basically a, a line on a price chart. And so Bitcoin being like a half a trillion dollar asset is still a rather idiosyncratic asset. It's actually heavily correlated with global liquidity. So if you look at global broad money supply in dollar terms, um, Bitcoin's heavily correlated with that. Um, so that's a, actually a very clear function that it serves. If you wanted to protect yourself from monetary inflation, which is different than CPI inflation, because CPI comes with a lag and is, by the time CPI inflation emerges, central banks are usually, you know, basically Bitcoin is a, has a clear role in a portfolio as if you have a view on monetary inflation, it's the closest asset I know that correlates with that in terms of price. In addition, as someone who focuses a lot of the fundamentals, the fact that you have an asset network that allows for global transfer, you can literally memorize 12 words and you can travel anywhere with an internet connection and be able to re-access your Bitcoin. And unlike a stable coin, it can't just be frozen. And so I basically, I view it as digital gold narrative has a lot of merit to it, but because it's less than a 15-year-old technology, and a lot of technologies can go up in a smooth pace. People rarely get a, get a smartphone and then go back to a flip phone, or they rarely get electricity and go back to not having electricity. But a financial thing is inherently going to have bubbles with it because if something just starts smoothly adopting, of course, people are going to leverage it up, and they're going to make paper versions of it, and they're going to commit fraud, and then it's going to blow up, and then it's going to retrace. And then unlike a normal technology, some people will say, you know what, I, this is a bad technology. I'm, I'm, I'm selling my Bitcoin and then they get out. And then, but the technology is actually still there. It's still powerful. There are still developers building new things on top of it, new wallets, new layers, things like that. And then it rebuilds for the next cycle. And so unlike a normal technology, a monetary technology has to, especially the unit of account itself, has to go through these cycles. Imagine if you could, if when the internet was being built, if there were somehow like shares of the internet and you could own a piece of the internet, that would have added a lot of volatility to it because as soon as it started rapidly growing, people would leverage it and cause problems. Just like we saw with some of the internet companies that were built on top of it. And so that's the pattern that I think it, that it, it's going through. And so I focus a lot on the fundamentals and I'm also at an advantage in the sense that I do some work in Bitcoin venture capital. And so I see the pipeline of development years out and I see all the people building on top of it. So generally when I see an analyst that talks about price, it just doesn't mention the fundamentals. Um, like what's, like I respect his analysis elsewhere, but it's just not, not something I can I really take into account for the, the Bitcoin market itself. Can you share some of those venture projects? Uh, so I work with Ego Death Capital. Yeah. That is a name. I like that yeah, name. name. <laughs> and of course, there's regulatory limits on what you can say. Our portfolio is public if you check out the website. But for example, some of the companies that we publicly invested in are, for example, Breeze, which is building out Lightning Network infrastructure to make it easier for if you're a, an app that wants to integrate the Bitcoin Lightning Network into your app, but you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to like figure out how to do that from scratch. 
they have an SDK that lets you just plug right into it pretty easily. It's, it's, you just have to customize the final pieces. Fetty is a company that allows communities around the world to build their own automated community bank. And then you can have different kind of modules. So different communities can build their own types of banks. They can customize it for their own needs. Uh, there's Sonoda, which is basically trying to make energy payments settle in more real time. And other investments like that that are basically building on top of the network or using the network to solve real world problems. I love all that. I wonder, guys, can we maybe switch to the world of global macro and a long-term debt cycle? And yeah, would... I've got a neat segue yeah. on that. Sure. Actually, with it. Because I, what's interesting to me, what's actually, this is just crystallizing now for me, but we run diversified, effectively globally market neutral quant strategies that are effectively designed to weather crises or be agnostic to what happens to the general economy. I think we all tend to be a little bit more on the pessimistic side about fiscal, the fiscal situation in many developed economies, the housing markets, especially in certain economies, et cetera. And we've taken steps, like all three of us, but as a company as well, to position for that. But we've, but we've done it in this diversified way. And I'm just realizing that maybe my resistance to embracing Bitcoin for the same reasons, is that, and I could be wrong here, but I do understand that there's a huge concentration of existing wealth within the Bitcoin space, right? There's whatever, some fraction, 10% or 20% or whatever, own some incredible proportion of all of the Bitcoins. That, that's one thing. The hard money aspect is another thing that we can get into and probably segues well into the next, the next segment. That's one thing that really troubles me. Does that trouble you at all? That if Bitcoin does take off, there's going to be a small cadre of multi-hundred billionaires who are going to be insanely wealthy and we're going to have a set of oligarchs like we had in Russia who are broadly distributed around the world and can have their way in whatever way they want. Yeah, so generally I look at it in a startup, in the, except that this one is not a security, so it did not raise capital. Basically, it was a software that was just put out there, and people found it at whatever pace that they found it. If you look at Bitcoin, is every bull and bear cycle, it gets more widely distributed. Because if you bought Bitcoin, and it was worth like 10 cents, and then it goes up to $8, and you now have enough money to buy a house or a mansion, you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of it now, or I'm going to get out half of it, or I'm going to, or just I have a life event. I want to buy a house now, and this is my wealth, so I'm going to do that. So you generally see distributive action during bull markets, and sometimes you see reaccumulation during bear markets. And if we look at the ownership structure of a startup company, it usually starts out quite concentrated. And then over time, as it gets to higher rounds of capital raising, and then as it goes public, and then as the initial founder steps aside, and over, over the course of years and decades, it eventually becomes a rather highly distributed asset. And I think Bitcoin's going through the same trajectory. There are like companies like WorldCoin that try to like circumvent that. And they say, okay, we're going to scan everybody's eyeballs and give them like an equal amount. But then you, you just, you don't really have a network effect and you're basically a security or security-like. And then they give a percentage to insiders, for example. Whereas Bitcoin is interesting because one, the founder of it never spent his own coins. They'd just been locked away for 15 years and all the volatility cycles, it's assumed that they've been private keys are burned or it's not even clear if he's still alive anymore. 
In addition, a lot of the biggest addresses are custodian addresses. For example, something like Coinbase has a lot of Bitcoin, but they hold that for millions of customers. And so it's, it's a little bit more distributed than just some of the simple analysis that media will do of, oh, this, this tiny percentage of addresses control this many coins. But I do think that it, it, it does, if Bitcoin becomes very large, that does result in a wealth shift. It's it probably, there's good things that can come from that. There's bad things that can come from that. I think one thing I'd point out is that so far, this current generational cycle has held on to power and wealth for longer than prior ones, probably partially just because lifetimes are longer. So in this, in similar age brackets from the prior generation, more wealth had transferred intergenerationally, whereas here, a lot of the wealth is still very firmly in, in older investors' hands. And Bitcoin is actually one of the distribution methods. If Bitcoin is successful, it's the average demographic for owning it is younger. It's a different distribution, but I think it's following the, the path of a startup. Yeah, the generational tussle is a, a, a great point there because the boomer generation has held on to the levers of power. No offense to any boomers here or watching, but I wonder if you could, on, I, I wanted to circle back, actually, you mentioned proof of work, proof of stake. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an update. That's something that I haven't kept up with so much. I know that Ethereum was going through a little bit of a move to proof of stake. Is that something that you think adds to the network or, or, or adds value to that network? And, and is that something that you see perhaps happening to Gwen as well? Because some of the criticism around it has been the uh, expenditure of energy towards mining. Yeah, so I, I find the proof of work model to be important if, if security is what you're trying to maximize for. So the challenge with proof of stake is that it becomes a, a circular reference. So the, the coin holders determine the state of the ledger and the state of the ledger is determined by who holds the coins. And so it's basically there's low fault tolerance because if a proof-of-stake network goes offline, which a number of them did, Solana did, um, Binance Chain did, they have to be manually restarted. And whereas if proof-of-work is basically self-correcting, basically the, the longest chain speaks for itself, the energy input acts as an external source that makes it so it's not like circular logic. That doesn't mean necessarily that there's not a use for proof of stake. If, you're, if your role is trying to have this like efficient kind of network for tokenizing assets or something, and you don't care about the fact that it's a little bit more centralized, it, can, it has some advantages to it. Like it, increase, it increases the cost of brute force attacking it if you're a smaller network, which is important. But for something like money itself, I think proof of work is just a far more robust system. And... I generally view the kind of the energy narrative to be overblown because Bitcoin uses a small percentage of global energy. And this is another area that I focus on. Like the amount of innovation coming out of that is remarkable because mostly Bitcoin uses energy at, it's like the most flexible energy buyer. And people underestimate how, what percentage of our electricity production is just literally curtailed. We have a hydro dam that 40% of it's unused, or we have solar production that puts output in the day. And then it's like a lot of it's free because they literally can't find buyers. And then it goes off and then there's like a shortage of it. And what Bitcoin idle is- yeah, Natural idle gas capacity. flaring. Yeah, natural gas flaring. You literally find gas with your oil. It's not enough to build a pipeline or so you just burn it away. And so Bitcoin miners, especially as the market becomes more efficient over time, like as long as they're in an environment mm -hmm. where it's allowed for them to operate, they go and basically fill in all these little nooks and crannies for energy that's being misused. There's even a new one, which is landfills emit a lot of methane. And methane is a, a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And there's 
for most of these, especially smaller or medium-sized landfills, there's not a really good capture. So it's like, what are you going to do with the energy on site? And so there's actually companies like Vespine Energy that now go out there and are increasingly using landfill gas. And that's actually over the long term, kind of net carbon negative, like greenhouse negative, because they're converting methane to carbon dioxide and doing something I would argue useful with it, which is actually less greenhouse gassing. Same thing's true for basically flaring. You convert more of it to carbon dioxide than you would just from burning it. In addition, Bitcoin, almost all the energy goes out as heat. And so I think uh, the next cycle is we're going to see more and more things using that heat for productive purposes. If you use the heat, you're double counting your energy. So if you happen to like perform calculations while you heat, that energy is actually not really wasted. And so I think that's, it's more efficient than people think. And it actually uses the higher percentages of renewables than any other industry that I'm aware of. That makes sense. Before we leave this, and I think this again might be a good segue, because I, and I recently attended a presentation by a representative. What are you observing in that space? And how do you expect central banks to compete with some of the decentralized offerings or create their own stable coins, for example? How do you see that whole ecosystem evolving? Nigeria's been an interesting case study because so they cut off crypto exchanges from their banking system. It's still legal to own them, but they just basically said, okay, banks can't send money to them. So they purposely just added frictions. You see a lot of this in emerging markets. They introduced CBDC, and yet Nigeria has much higher adoption of cryptocurrency than it does of its own CBDC among the public. It shows the challenge of trying to launch something that people don't particularly want, and that it exists alongside these other things. And especially if the ledger mm-hmm. itself is unreliable, if you're living in Nigeria and the currency is losing its value pretty quickly, people are clamoring for stable coins or Bitcoin and things like that. And so it, it's especially the weaker jurisdictions, it's very hard for them to do it. And then, of course, in in other jurisdictions, it brings up privacy concerns. Should the government have surveillance of every transaction, for example? Um, There's pushback on that. It's a very politically polarizing issue. And so I do think that is the fork in the road going forward, is that a number of countries are probably increasingly going to try to launch central bank digital currencies, but then they're increasingly competing with pushback against them. And they're competing, especially if they're one of the weaker jurisdictions, with people that clamor for other assets instead. And it's they're basically competing with the market at that point. And even when they use the government lever to do things like shut off crypto from banking, if it's a big enough divide in quality, people still find a way to, they use peer-to-peer, they get remittances. They Like I said, it, it's you can send it over email, you can send it over a, a, a video call, right? And so it just gets around a lot of these restrictions. And so it's actually pretty hard to, insert a CBDC that people don't particularly want. So it's only if people want it, are they going to be successful? Nigeria strikes me as a bit of an edge case, given its history of diluting its currency and and decades of massive uh, inflation. What are the potential knockoff effects of the U.S. taking a more hostile stand against decentralized as they, for example, may try to rule out their own CBDC? Yeah, so I think if you look at Latin America and Africa, to, to touch on the earlier point, most of them have literally hyperinflated in our lifetimes, right? So it's, I, I'd actually consider, when you look at the broad sample, I don't consider Nigeria an edge case. They're not in the stronger camp, but there's literally 100 countries out there like Nigeria. And so the basically the total adjustable market for areas where people are going to clamor for external assets rather than their country's own CBDC is, we're talking about billions of people. So it's it, I consider it, it's, it's one of those cases. Now, I do think the United States is practically the only only jurisdiction 
that has enough firepower to really give Bitcoin a problem. But actually, if anything, we're seeing it go in the opposite direction. We're seeing institutions start to embrace it more. I think we're seeing a, a two-part divide. I think on one hand, the SEC has lost various legal battles against spot ETFs and stuff. Basically, we have some degree of rule of law. An interesting precedent was the 1990s, Phil Zimmerman. He, he invented open source cryptography, you know, PGP, pretty good privacy. And the federal government went after him criminally for exporting arms. That's how they said, we don't like the fact that you can make peer-to-peer encryption. You've exported like military-grade arms to the world. So he said, okay, I see your point. So he wrote the code in a book and said, now it's the First Amendment. It's just code. It's just math and, and words. And also people, like there's another <laughs> encryption technique. And actually one of the people who was, actually the guy that invented proof of work, he, he went and made t-shirts with the code on it and said, hey, this, you can't export this t-shirt. This is military-grade arms. Right. It's, it's like a it's a logic. It's like an argument to show how if you're at the point where certain T-shirts are dangerous, maybe the law is actually the problem. And so the point is, Phil Zimmerman won the case. Actually, the U.S. just withdrew. They said, OK, checkmate, First Amendment. And they had to change how they do that. And that opened up the whole reason why we feel comfortable with paying with credit cards online is because of end to end encryption that basically let e-commerce flourish because they didn't try to overly control it. And today, there's similar pushback where, on one hand, the government doesn't really care if there's certain big silos of KYC. They care about these privacy techniques. They care about self-custodial Bitcoin. And I think we're seeing a two-front thing where it's increasingly accepted as an asset. They also are bound by their own rule of law and a similar thing against Phil Zimmerman, where they try to block spot ETFs and the SEC gets, they were called arbitrary and capricious by one of the appeals courts. Basically, their argument just lacked merit. And so because we have an independent judiciary, at least for the most part, it's hard to, it's hard to just do whatever unless you have just a sweeping majority that kind of like in, in the FDR environment of the past. And so I think that there's multiple, it's like a bunch of paper cuts can make it really hard for them. There's all these friction points if they want to slow this down. Uh, but I think the, the part that they're probably going to be pretty aggressive on is privacy techniques on Bitcoin. Uh, making harder or more regulatory onerous to self-custody Bitcoin. And I think that'll, they can slow things down. But I think also a lot of it, the companies and stuff will just migrate to other countries. And we've already seen that to some degree. There are other countries that say, okay, we're going to be a hub for it then. So if you're Singapore or Dubai or El Salvador, you say, come here or Switzerland even. And they say, build here instead. And so we just seek dispersion. Okay. Let's set aside the potential use case for Bitcoin as a nihilistic speculation. And let's assume that there's, that, that a core motivation of even people in the, in the developed world to be interested in Bitcoin or other alternative kind of hard currencies or edges against currency devaluation. Why are people in the developed world suddenly becoming more concerned about that? So I think, and Ray Dalio has talked a lot about this, the long-term debt cycle. When a lot of this discussion, I think rightfully, was on emerging markets going through their crises. But what a lot of people forget is that the developed markets of the world have gone through major currency crises in the past, especially when debts get well over 100% debt to GDP. And then you run mm-hmm. into either war or a big commodity bull market when you're already that levered. That's where major currency devaluations occur. And then when countries run into that problem, they often try to basically do financial oppression and capital controls to recapitalize themselves with varying degrees of success. And so things like, obviously, depending on, on how you see things, some people use gold to protect themselves. Some people use real estate with a fixed rate mortgage. 
Some people use equities. Some people use Bitcoin. Basically, various ways to protect yourself from a longer period of inflation that, that burns away some of that debt. And mm-hmm. in the developed world, we can be numb to some of these problems because we, we don't, like, people in emerging markets counter them, like, either all the time or at least, like, once a generation. Whereas we encounter these problems historically, like, every three generations or so. And so it's, like, recency bias off of our radar. But I think going forward, we are getting increasingly problematic fiscal and sovereign debt situations. We also see increasing geopolitical escalation, which can be very expensive depending on how certain things proliferate or break out. And having scarce assets is attractive. And with, like I said, you can memorize 12 words and you can access your Bitcoin in any internet connected country in the world, basically. Write, write them down or bring them on a little hardware wallet or split the keys up and have them on different locations. And I don't really consider it nihilistic speculation. I think that uh, I just view it as the next era of monetary technology, how things are pointing. Bitcoin, stablecoins, basically just various ways to transmit value in either ways that are fully decentralized or in stablecoins case where the endpoints are bare assets that tied to a centralized hub. And that these are just basically more optionality points for people to have control over their own money. So who was it, I forget, that said that that these kinds of monetary crises happen slowly and then all at once. So I think it'd be useful for you, for you to take us down one or two perhaps more likely trajectories that describe how this kind of debt and then eventually monetary crisis may play out in the developed world. Yeah, so before they, you do that, Lynn, I just want to remind everybody, we've got Lynn Alden, uh, Lynn Alden contact at for Twitter. Richard Latterman's here, our Latterman. On Twitter, Gestalt you, Adam Butler, talking now into the global macro stage after talking lots and lots about broken money and Lynn's new book. So if you're just joining the show, that's who's on and just about to dig into a couple scenarios on a go-forward basis. So Lynn, back to you and, and subscribe. Yeah, so generally what we see in public finances or monetary systems is that they're metastable in the sense that they have a partial stability, but there's usually an error function. Something is slowly building up over time. And so over the past 40 years, we've had structurally falling interest rates, structurally rising public debts. But that's been very manageable because even though your debt as a percentage of GDP is increasing, your interest expense is very well contained because of those falling interest rates. And a big factor that allowed those interest rates to fall so much was globalization. So China opened up to the world starting in the 80s and and accelerating the next two decades. Uh, Soviet Union fell in the early 90s. and so basically Western capital came together with Eastern labor and Eastern resources. And it was this big period of disinflationary globalization. And the problem now is that geopolitically, that's obviously, that's been thrown into question a lot more recently. And then two, just mathematically, we've used up a lot of that disinflationary resource. So we've gone all the way to zero interest rates, mildly negative in some countries. We've bounced off of zero. We've done a lot of fiscal. And so now we no longer have that falling interest rate offset to our ever-rising public debt as a percentage of GDP and our fiscal deficits. And so now, a lot of the concerns that people had 30 years ago, and they couldn't necessarily foresee the gigantic disinflationary period we'd have in front of us, but now it's like the part two of that. They're saying, okay, now we have all these debts and deficits without the interest rate offset, and that's an issue. Another way to describe it, and Ray Dalio has done work on this, and I've really spent like past four years studying how these things tend to recur, and generally, When you have falling interest rates and ever-rising debt bubbles, 
usually you get a two-stage crisis. So the first stage is a private debt bubble popping, right? So 1929 and 2008 were example of those. And those tend to be disinflationary or deflationary, depending on how they're handled, which is that private sector leverage starts to collapse. And then to varying degrees, you get a, a bank recapitalization, you get leverage shifted from the private sector up to the public sector. And the second stage of the crisis is what happens when the public debt itself becomes challenged. Because unlike the the private sector, they're not going to default. And instead, they tend to print the difference. And they run into a more inflationary type of crisis. That's usually the kind of the, the recapitalization that happens on the sovereign debt level. And so much like the, I would argue that the 2008 was very similar to the 1929 2010s were very similar to 1930s, at least in terms of macro. There are obviously a lot of differences. And the 2020s are shaping up a lot like the 1940s, which is when you have very large fiscal deficits, more inflation on average, more geopolitical conflict, and then risks of financial repression and other trying to find ways to basically recapitalize the sovereign balance sheet. And that can be, in the past, they would do it with like gold revaluations and things like that. And now a lot of it's just basically done with QE and money printing and just this constant kind of pushing way of the problem. And the issue is that if at a certain level, if you get very high public debt loads, interest rates become less of an offset for inflation. Because if you go back to the 70s, public debt was 30% of GDP and most of the money creation was from the banking sector. So if you raise interest rates a lot, you push down loan creation, which slows down money supply growth. And although you do increase public deficits, it's a much smaller amount than the amount of loan creation you're pushing down. But if you go up to 100% of debt to GDP, or if you're in Japan's case of 250% debt to GDP, if you increase interest rates, um, although you do push down private sector loan creation, you blow out the deficit as much or more as the bank lending that you're slowing down. And so the further along that path you get, the less effective interest rates are as a tool. And so the kind of the potential snare is that if you run into a commodity bull market, like uh, just a period of you did not do sufficient CapEx, now we need another CapEx cycle. So these tend to be roughly 15-year cycles. Or you encounter various wars or other kind of social things that can destabilize things. And you're at that very high debt load. Then you start to have basically developing markets have emerging market-like characteristics where you get inflation that's just persistent. It's hard to control. And I think that's the environment that the 2020s and the 2030s are shaping towards in a lot of these countries. And people will hear that and say, that's, that's doomy. But it's, I just got back from a country that has 37% inflation. And we, people go to restaurants, they're going to resorts, they're driving to work, they're, the world has these kind of cycles that can sound remarkable and sometimes, but life goes on. And I, I basically think that the developed world currencies are going to have maybe not to the same level, but directionally, functionally similar problems that some of these emerging markets face. It seems like what a lot of people are, are concerned as this topic of fiscal reckoning comes into the forefront for a country like the U.S. is that the asset bubble that has propelled so much of the wealth effect and has driven so much of the economy. I just saw GDP figures beating already high expectations, largely driven by consumer spending. And so if we were to see this uh, fiscal reckoning, which seems like at least the market to some extent is starting to price that in or has been, and we see that quite a bit at the long end of the curve, 
then we would have a, a deflation or, or, or popping of that asset bubble. So if that were to happen, wouldn't that to some degree bring on what Russell Napier has talked about quite a bit and you just mentioned, which is this idea of financial repression? Wouldn't that also entail to some degree a repression on digital assets that were not sanctioned by the Fed? So anything outside of a C, uh, uh, Bitcoin and some of the other ones, wouldn't that be a driving force to to try and contain their adoption because they would be the natural hedge against monetary debasement in that case. So I think it's a risk, but I think it's important to keep in mind that especially in in in, in democracies and republics, there's the government's not a monolith, right? And for example, until very recently, the acting speaker of the house, he's hosting the Bitcoin white paper on Congress's website. And of course, they just elected a new one. So that that's that era is done. But yeah, for like weeks, the acting speaker of the House was doing that. There's a number of congressmen that are pro-Bitcoin. There are presidential candidates that are. There are senators that like the asset. We have a very polarized political environment. We have independent judiciary, at least for the most part, one of the more independent ones. Like we said, the SEC can lose against private sector in the court of law. And it takes, when you go back to say the FDR time, the, the last time that the world went through this, FDR had 70% of Congress was in his party. They had a supermajority. They threatened to pack the court, for example. They had basically all the levers of power were very centralized. And that was one of the most centralized that the United States was ever was politically. So yeah, if you get a scenario like that or close to it, you, you could have pretty substantial problems. And then even if you don't get that, there's still parts of the government, like FinCEN, for example, that can increasingly try to put pressure on it. But basically, the defense there is that because of political polarization, because of independent judiciary, there's a lot of frictions, actually, that, that prevent them from just saying, hey, we're going to ban you memorizing 12 words, and you have to use our CBDC instead. You have to get through like the Texas lawmakers, and you have to get through the... Basically, it's a messy situation to do that. Maybe in China, they can do that. One thing I would... You know, with Bitcoin, if, if China has trouble fully banning something, it might be a signal that it's strong. and so. It's funny, China banned Bitcoin mining and they did it multiple times, never really stuck. They finally went harder at it in 2021. So half the network went offline because they were the biggest mining jurisdiction. And if you go to Amazon or Microsoft and you told them, okay, you have to move all your servers into like half of your server infrastructure internationally next week, you can imagine the downtime they would have and for months or, or up to a year or more as they try to get their services back online. The Bitcoin network just maintained 100% uptime, slowed down for a week or two until the automatic difficulty adjustment kicked in. Then their miners, just like a swarm, just reassembled elsewhere. Some of it went to Kazakhstan and Russia. Some of, a lot of it went to the United States and Canada. It just dispersed. And then ironically, something like 20% of the network reemerged in China. They're still like the second biggest mining jurisdiction because it's actually pretty hard to, to stamp it out. And let alone in a, in a place like the United States that actually has these separate kind of sources of power and more pushback against kind of draconian laws. I think it's, it just comes down to this type of era, fourth turning era, geopolitical conflict, sovereign debt crises. These are, they're not easy to navigate and the political polarization or extreme outcomes are always risks on the table. So for somebody who wants to be a little bit more diversified in their approach to all of the various ways that this might play out. Other than Bitcoin, what are some other approaches that people can take to manage these kinds of risks? So I've been a 
bond bear for a few years, but after this big change in bonds, this big crash in bonds and the pretty high real yields that are available, I find tips to be pretty interesting at these levels. The way that I generally assume, like my base case expectation until I see things materializing otherwise, is that we've had 40 years of declining interest rates, higher equity valuations. Going forward, if interest rates are choppy sideways going forward, I, I think the equity market could be also choppy and sideways probably. You're starting from still pretty high valuations, potentially higher input costs from wages, or if we get another kind of commodity cycle, real estate I think is probably going to be range bound quite a bit. And so I think a lot of these asset classes are going to probably not do great in real terms over say a five, 10 year period. That's not unusual in, in financial market history, especially when looking globally, but also in the United States. And if that's the case, I think there are other assets like tips that are, I think, pretty interesting on a risk-adjusted basis. I think T-bills are interesting. I think gold is interesting. I think if it manages to kind of break out, it can have a pretty pretty big run for price discovery. If someone's been fortunate enough to have a real estate with a fixed-rate mortgage attached, I think try to hold on to that if you can. And uh, I think there are certain emerging markets that are interesting. They're cheap, and uh, they add more risk in some ways, but they also diversify total risk. So I think that there are select emerging markets that are interesting and that you just want to have some of your diversification because it's, I think it's going to be a bumpy ride, but a number of assets do look attractive. You, you mentioned energy and the energy complex and the potential for some consternation in that area. Is that an area that you would also think or look to, given that at the moment, I think uh, energy stocks are maybe 4% of the S&P. That feels low on a market cap weighted basis, but yeah, I'm structurally bullish on energy producers and the underlying commodities. I don't really have a six-month view because that that's going to depend on recession or lack thereof, what happens in the Middle East over the next several months, potential for supply disruptions in some cases. I wouldn't try to do that, but I do think that the CapEx cycle, I think we need another CapEx cycle in energy. So I think basically it's a tight supply side. Producers are profitable at current levels, up or down $15. They're making good money. They're, they, a lot of them have good balance sheets. They're paying good dividends. They're buying back shares. They're not being overly aggressive at putting that money back into the ground to get more and more out of it. And so I think that that area is very attractive. And I also think that it works well with the rest of a portfolio because in a structurally disinflationary environment, stocks and bonds are good at offsetting each other. They're inversely correlated. And mm -hmm. if we do enter a more on average inflationary environment, stocks and bonds, as we've seen recently, can be more correlated. And energy producers actually end up being one of the, the less correlated assets or inversely correlated because in an environment where energy stays pretty cheap, stocks prefer disinflation order. That, that's what allows them to have kind of higher average equity valuations, less costs on their cost side. Whereas if you do get much higher energy prices, that could be very disruptive for some of the equity producers and of course for bonds and things like that. But it'd be good if you're owning the energy producers or the underlying commodity. So I do think that in this type of decade, a commodity segment, particularly you know, diversifier for your stocks, bonds, tips, the, the rest of your portfolio. Yeah, I want, I want to highlight that. Just it, it, again, it's 4% of the S&P. That just seems yeah. too low given all of the things you've mentioned and the geopolitical uncertainties that are around, notwithstanding the six-month uh, forecast. Yeah, That's I, not I would expect I was, to I see that back up yeah, I'd expect to see that back up to double digits by the end of the decade. If it's not above 10% at some point, I'd be somewhat surprised. It, it might be some headline baiting, but Navalier said he thinks it'll be at 25%, I think it was, by 
2025, which is a long way. But anyway, that's a, that's a very big, that's yeah. either a pretty big crash or a pretty big energy. So that's I'm not some sure. location. <laughs> yeah, some I, location. As I said, that's, it may have been a little bit of some headline grabbing, but anyway. I can imagine more scenarios that lead to that. But outside of major war, I, I would expect it to take longer. I'm not sh- I don't know if it, 25% eventually would not be shocking to me. It'd be on the more aggressive side of my assumption. But I feel comfortable saying I, I, I'd be surprised if it doesn't eventually reach double digits in many years ahead. So basically, it's, it's an era that I certainly want to be overexposed to. I want to touch on gold. You mentioned gold earlier. That one has confounded a lot of people. And uh, if I think if you had told someone a couple of years ago that all these events would have taken place on a geopolitical level and that we would have rampant inflation, obviously the monetary tightening cycle and the rising of real interest rates hurts the, the demand for gold. But it still seems like gold might have been at a higher level at this point. Do you have an opinion there why it has not popped, why it has not acted as, as the ballast that a lot of people expected it might? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would have expected it to be a little bit higher too, based on all that's happened. On one hand, if you look at it compared to real rates, it's held up a lot better than you'd expect. And so it's, it's been in this middle ground where it could have been worse, but I, I think a lot of people rightly expected it to be higher. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the market is now split between things like gold and Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has been taking some of the market share because instead of just one option or instead of just gold and silver, now it's like gold, silver, Bitcoin. And so some marginal capital is now fractured into more assets that kind of fill a similar role. That's one. Number two is that the Fed tightening cycle has been immense. It's the first time in decades that they've raised higher than the prior cycle. The rate of change of their tightening has been huge. It's the first time in decades that you've had negative year-over-year broad money supply growth. And so all of that is putting down pressure on the dollar. If you look at on gold, if you look at gold priced in yen or euro or most emerging market currencies, it's broken out to new highs and has prices. It's a dollar story is what you're saying. It's mostly a dollar story. And that's also relevant because, like I said, I know literally physicians in Egypt so well-off people that have cash under their mattress, American Benjamins under their mattress for lack of a better savings option. And there's a certain monetary premium that's put into the dollar. And if we go through a dollar weakening cycle, I think gold can catch a major bit. But basically, as long as the dollar remains, as, as long as the Fed's able to remain tight in the face of these fiscal deficits, which I think has a clock to it, like you can only maintain this monetarily tight while you have that level of fiscal looseness. Eventually, one of them's got to move and it's probably not going to be the treasury, but we'll see. And so when that comes, if you have a cutting cycle or even just you're no longer hiking anymore and those deficits are still happening, gold usually does pretty well in in that type of less restrictive environment. So I do think it's a matter of time until gold eventually breaks out in a way that gold's already broken out against most other currencies. So I think, yeah, I think you phrased it well. It's mostly a dollar story. So let's pull on that bread. Why has the dollar been this strong? It, 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 it's, it makes sense in some ways when you see what's happened to treasury yields and, and they're more attractive on a relative basis. There's also the fact that the dollar and treasuries have been weaponized since the breakout of the conflict in the Ukraine. What gives? What do you attribute to this, uh, this strength in the dollar? So part of it is that it's the global unit of account, especially for debt. And so there's 
over $13 trillion of dollar-denominated debt overseas. And that's mostly not even owed to the U.S. Brazil will owe dollars to China, or Argentina will owe dollars to Germany, right? It's just it's the way that global financing works. Most of it's owed from one country to another country, and neither of those countries are America. But all of that represents inflexible demand for dollars. It's contractual demand because you have to eventually get dollars to service your debts, or if you ever want to repay part of your debt. And so there's like a kind of a an extra bid for it. And then as just the most saleable currency among others, like I said, there's people in countries on the world that just hold cash dollars and give that, it's like a bunch of little micro bids for it to spread around the world, holding that in place of something else that they could be holding. And in addition, just we've had very strong fiscal looseness. And this goes back to like market wizards like Stanley Druckenmiller. If you have fiscal looseness, but monetary tightness. That's usually pretty strong for a currency for as long as they can maintain that blend. Now, that's not a that's not a mix you can usually maintain indefinitely because right now, as tight as we are, the foreign sector is not really buying treasuries. The Fed's not buying treasuries. Banks are not buying treasuries. So it's mostly domestic non-bank entities have to absorb all this treasury issuance, which is, it's limited. But as long as they can maintain that, that's pretty dollar positive, especially when you add on all that foreign demand for dollars. That is, again, it's inflexible demand to service existing debts. And so I think that basically the dollar can remain strong until it becomes clear that the Fed is either no longer able to tighten and that they basically get run over by fiscal dominance. I think that's basically until something like that happens, we're stuck in this kind of more range-bound or kind of dollar-tight scenario. But if you do hit that scenario, then you probably get a big bounce in emerging markets, gold, Bitcoin, on various types of assets like that. Do you think part of it has to do with the Treasury having elected to issue more bills than duration in their last several issuances? And so it has uh, deprived the global financial system from pristine collateral. And so if you're just printing bills, there remains to some degree a, a, a bid. It's also partly one of the reasons why we haven't seen longer term rates rise as much as maybe they would otherwise have, but perhaps because they issue only on the shorter end of the curve that has retained some of the demand for US dollars? That makes I, actually, sense? I actually think that alleviates some of the demand because if, so that allowed them to tap into the reverse repo liquidity that existed and, and bring some of that back into the financial system. If they had not, if they had issued more coupons, I think that would actually would have tightened rates and the dollar more. and. Right now, I don't think the world is lacking pristine collateral. The way I would describe it is that when the dollar's strong or strengthening, usually countries are on defense mode, right? They're not printing money to accumulate reserves. They're either selling assets to backstop their own currency, or they're at least not, not really buying new ones. They might just be holding steady. And so usually you see an inverse relationship between dollar strength and foreign treasury buying or selling. And basically, late last year, as the gilt market broke, and as the U.S. Treasury market was getting quite wobbly, it was looking pretty weak, but then the Treasury started to do some of these unusual actions. First, it started to rapidly draw down their Treasury general account. Partially, it was to alleviate some of that. And then, of course, the debt ceiling extended that. And then when they got past the debt ceiling, the fact that they filled it up almost exclusively with T-bills allowed them to avoid a liquidity problem. And now that they've reintroduced coupons, we've seen a surge in yields. And so I think it's, if anything, that over 
issuance of T-bills has alleviated the problem and extended the, the duration that they can continue doing this. And basically, the reverse repo facility can be thought of as a pocket of excess demand for T-bills. There's a ton of demand for T-bills out there, uh, which is not always the case. For example, 2019 had the opposite problem with the repo spike. But in this current environment, there's so much excess demand for T-bills. And so that's basically what they've been issuing. They're saying, okay, if there's all this reverse repo facility liquidity build up, we can issue extra T-bills to pull that some of that back into markets. So what would you say what might be some of the more confident signals that we're moving from this kind of unstable equilibrium, this kind of range-bound situation that we're in now while central banks are able to drain liquidity from the system, treasuries are able to issue debt and, and get bids despite pretty wide deficits. What would signal to you that we're moving to the next stage where the market is becoming aware of a, an imminent state of fiscal dominance and some of the other dominoes begin to fall? So a couple of things. One is I would look towards the reverse repo facility. So that's being drawn down. When that eventually gets closed or at zero, that's a source of liquidity that has been entering the market that is no longer there. So that, that, that's when the rubber starts to hit the road in terms of who's going to buy these deficits. So that, that's like a kind of a time clock I'm watching. Another one would be I look at treasury market liquidity and volatility. So the move index is what I look at, as well as the quality of treasury auctions to look for tailing auctions or just overall kind of issues. So treasury market, even though it's been selling off lately, liquidity's still been reasonable. It's volatility and liquidity are not great compared to their historical average, but they're not as bad as they were in like autumn 2022 when the gilt market broke and the treasury market was looking really wobbly. But if you start to have those conditions again, that would be a very negative sign. And so I think those are the markets to watch. I think as long as you're still liquidity in the treasury market, we can have, for example, some capital can rotate out of stocks and give treasuries more of a bid. There's still that reverse repo facility that, that's being drained by whatever percentage continues to be T-bill issuance. Those give some breathing room. But I think if we get to a point where they're no longer there and, and rubber hits the road and that the Fed has to change their balance sheet tactic while inflation is still above target, I think that's when we enter the next regime that we've been in. So we've been in from 2020, 2021, it was a very accelerating regime. 2022, 2023, we've been in more of a downward or range-bound regime. And I think that's probably set to continue for a period of time until some of these things get get messier. Yeah, would you say gold also, a breakout in gold in dollar terms probably would be another canary in the coal mine? I agree. Yeah, I think that's it's probably correlated with some of these. I think it could probably, it potentially could come first in very kind of rate of change method. I mean, that I don't think you need to see some of this other stuff happen in order for gold to start slowly breaking out. But I, yeah, I think that's another great variable to watch. How about the oh, BOJ? We, uh, one last question that we've been on for an hour and 20. Lynn, you've been very kind yeah, with your sure. time. So Richard, last question. Yeah, I know I just could ask Lynn about the BOJ. They're, they're starting to hint at a possible normalization at possibly removing yield curve control. Would that be a potential other catalyst for so, for this next move? So I think so. That can repatriate some capital. The challenge is that, so we talked before about how the more public debt you get, the less useful interest rates are as a tool for fighting inflation. So ironically, if, if let's say Japan goes up to 3% interest rates, to some degree of normalization, that could actually be pro-inflationary for Japan, which is counterintuitive. When you have 250% debt to GDP and you're fiscal paying- Fiscal dominance. Yeah, you're, it's fiscal dominance because they have 
very little money creation from loans, loan creation. Most of their money is from monetized fiscal deficits. And so if you blow out the deficit with interest expense, you actually arguably accelerate money supply growth, but you also can help the yen stay up and you can pull some capital back. What makes Japan interesting, and in many cases, the opposite of the US, is that they had decades of structural trade surpluses. So they build up a very positive net international investment position. And so they can maintain this unusual policy for quite a long period of time if they choose to, because they have so much firepower to keep the yen orderly, even as they do yield curve control. So basically, most central banks, the options would be balance sheet or interest rates. But Japan, because they have a, quite a bit of reserves, they have like a trillion of treasuries, basically. They Anytime yen shorts get too over their skis, they can just intervene and blow out all the, the shorts. And it just slows down the rate of yen devaluation, even as they maintain unusual policy. And then their equities do pretty well. Their exports get pretty competitive when they get like a orderly yen devaluation. So they can, it depends on what they want to do. They actually have a lot of firepower to maintain the status quo for a while. And it comes down to if they choose to, that is no longer in their interest. So I'm not really, so some people are like Japan doomers. I'm not really in that camp. Obviously, they have demographics issues. I wouldn't be long like their currency. But I think basically it's just, it's a, they have a lot of levers to pull to keep extending this to the extent that they want to. And then they also have a lot of social cohesion. So unlike the United States and Europe that have kind of very high levels of political polarization, and many emerging markets similarly do as well, Japan has not really gone down that route yet, or even showing strong signs of it relative to others. And so the combination of their positive net international investment position and their social cohesion actually gives them quite a long runway to make the yields what they want them to be and the, the yen to dollar pair to be the range that they want it to be, or at least the pace of change that they want it to be. So it's watching it out of interest. Amazing. Lynn, your knowledge is encyclopedic at times. It's uh, really amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. Richard, always a pleasure to have you on Riffs. Adam as well. Go check out Lynn's best-selling book, Broken Money. And you can find Lynn at Lynn Alden, Alden Contact on Twitter or lynnalden.com. Of course, this is sponsored by Invest Resolve, and this is our riffs. And we look forward to seeing you next week. And I'll just remind everyone, just hang on so that we can make sure the recordings are uploaded and cue the music. Excellent. I did want to take a quick second to remind listeners that while we do absolutely love providing our audience with world-class guests and weekly investment insights, we wanted to remind you that we actually do our best work outside of this podcast. And we try to do this by providing cutting-edge, globally diversified, and systematic investment strategies that are designed to be broadly non-correlated to traditional equity and bond portfolios. So we actually manage private and public funds, as well as bespoke, separately managed accounts for investors that seek the potential to smooth out portfolio returns in the long run. So if you do want to see that theory that we've been talking about put into practice, please do go ahead and check us out at investresolve.com. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.
This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve masterclass.